Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is the second part of our look at Rubber Soul. In our first part, we were looking at the first week of sessions in October 1965 and now we're going to look at some more sessions but also the other bits of life that intervene uh, in in mid-October 1965 because they were busy and when we left them they had just uh, nailed down In My Life and George Martin had done his uh, he'd nipped in and done a solo for the boys done his piano the next day of note is October the 19th which isn't a a rubber soul recording session but is actually a Christmas fan club message recording session and I think it's a metaphor for the change in the band that they they read a Tony Barrow script and generally just think it's rubbish. Yeah, yeah. yes, this is true. You can you can th- th- this tape is uh, tapes of this day are circulating uh, have circulated for a long time uh, in bootlegs, and you can you, they're they're not feeling it. They're not feeling it. Yes, um, and it is a kind of stilted. You know, they sing Bonfire Night to the tune of Silent Night. Well, it's in, not fun. That's not that's not hilarious, you know. And, and that's not international. It's not international. And you can you can hear that they don't uh, they 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 just don't want to do this. And um, they occasionally they it's almost like improv in certain parts where they kind of throw something out and uh, you know there's a bell and they sort of say, oh it's sort of like a boxing ring or oh it's. Uh, uh, hotel night porter or it's and it just is but one of the interesting things is at one point paul shouts we've got to pull ourselves together and you think this is just that's his catchphrase this will become his catchphrase uh, for the next five years uh we've got to pull ourselves together um so this was at the marquee studio in london uh 10 richmond news which is part of the mm. market marquee club i've never been to the marquee club i don't think is it still there don't look for it it's still there uh have I been to the marquee? I have not been to the marquee. Um, yeah, it's it's one of these Tony Barrow things. And I guess, you know, Paul or um, John and George have already been LSD'd and through their mind's eyes. So the last thing they want to do is to read some, you know, early 60s press, you know, hey, guys, we're all having a good time. Thanks for all the letters type thing. They're they're on another astral plane at this point. This is John speaking with his voice. You know, they've moved past that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it... it, it uh, 
it kind of ends up essentially in the bin. There's a short section that gets used on a promotional flexi disc for the disc and music echo um, that comes out in spring 66. And it was auctioned off reel to reels from the session in 2003 and 2004. And as you say, the circulation, uh, the, the bootleg is out there in circulation with fans, but it's, it's a bit of a lost day's work, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lost day. And given the pressure they were under, I mean, you, you, you imagine this was also part of the reason why they were feeling this is this is not contributing to getting done what needs to be done. We've got to pull ourselves together, yep. Jason. We've got to get to the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next day is Wednesday, the 20th of October, and that's a session that is dedicated solely to not essentially rubber soul, but to we can work it out which, um, you know, we're either going to talk about or not talk about because it's not nothing to do with rubber soul. We should just move straight on to the next day or maybe not. <laughs> we, we, we have talked about We Can Work It Out in our double A-sided issue, but it's, 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 it's worth uh, noting that it's another one of these songs about um, Paul not really having a great time with Jane Asher. Yeah, it's one of those songs that people come at from different angles. So uh, Lucas Hare from Is It Rolling, uh, Bob, the Dylan podcast, he and I have exchanged views on this and we think it's a one of paul's passive aggressive songs it's uh you know you've got to see it my way um why why do you persist in your wrong-headed view i'm right you're wrong um whereas other people see it as a a plea for universal <laughs> love and brotherhood i don't see it that way <laughs> at all well it's it's another one of these kind of john paul songs you know where john adds in his life is very short bit and you know the you know you could argue that the song is saying you know we can work it out but it's also saying we can work it out if you try to see it my way yes <laughs> I, know, I think, which isn't I, totally conciliatory no i think that's the point and you say it's a john and paul song but i'm i'm here to stick up for team george and he comes up with the idea of the change of tempo into the waltz section and again listening lennon you are a band that does waltz songs um yeah well, the, 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 the big debate is always, you know, should Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane have been on Sgt. Pepper? And I don't think that's the big debate. I think the big debate is uh, should Paperback Writer and Rain have been on Revolver? And following that, the big debate is should Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out have been on Rubber Soul? And I'm here to say, yes, they should. You think they should? What would you have dropped? I would drop Run For Your Life and I would drop What Goes On. Perfect single. That would be a great single. That wouldn't have got anywhere. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying I would have dropped them into, you know, I don't know, some kind of locked vault for Anthology 7. But where, where, <laughs> where is the, where's the single? Well, here's the thing. They, you know, they, they put out the Help album with a, a concurrent single from the Help album. So when Help came out on the same day as uh, Ticket to Ride, you know, so they did have form. They weren't totally um, agnostic about um, taking a single off an album as long as the single came out on the same day as the album. You know, yeah. uh, Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine came out on the same day as Revolver. So they could have put out that as a single the same day as Rubber Soul and not totally have been in trouble for it. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, it's such a good single. <laughs> it's such it a good double a. It, it is, you, you know, it's, it's one of their best singles. Um, I absolutely agree with you about Revolver. I would definitely have taken Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine as the standalone single and, and Rain and Paperback Rider much more of a piece sonically with, mm. with, with that album. But uh, no, I think I, for me, Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out is such um such a good single and and what i like about it is day tripper is 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 a sort of continuation from ticket to ride that sound and we can work it out is very much 
um, of the sound they're exploring on Rubber Soul. So it kind of bridges that that gap. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's the Beatles' first double A side. Shut up. It's the world's first double A side. You know, they literally couldn't decide which single, you know, Day Tripper is the single and then We Can Work It Out comes along and Epstein thinks that should be the single. And then they're like, they can both be singles on double A side. Let's let's just invent this brand new thing. So that's what they do. Um, and that's what they spend the day on the 20th of October doing We Can Work It Out. But we're not going to talk about We Can Work It Out because it's not on Rubber Soul. So to hell with that song, I say. Okay. So let's move on. Let, let, let's move on to uh, Thursday, October the 21st, except we've already talked about October the 21st uh, because that was when they did uh, Norwegian Wood. Um, yes, the so second can... version of Norwegian Wood. But they, they also go, though, they also did another bit of work on that day, which was they introduced Nowhere Man. Yes. How do you feel about Nowhere so Man? They, they... Uh, I'm not going to, I think... Uh, You're not going to lie. I, I... I'm not, no, I'm not going to lie. I think it's really interesting. Again, it goes back to this thing we said in the first part that Lennon is really trying. I, I think stylistically, I don't think there's any album where Lennon is doing so many different kind of styles and moods. I like Nowhere Man a lot, actually. I think it's really unusual. Mm. And uh, but, I, but it's OK, go on. You don't like it. No, I do. I do. I do like it. I do like it. I, uh, it's it's. It's very, very different, but you sort of say, oh, it's different, it's unusual. It's, it sounds like a different, unusual, interesting. It's like all the things you say about something where you can't <laughs> think of anything nice to say. But um, it, is a, it is an odd song, I suppose. It sits I think it at, is an odd song. I think it's kind of uncoverable in a way. It's not really, um, it, 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 it's kind of part song, part record. You know, it, it's partially the recording and the sound of the voices and... Paul's high harmony at the end. They're the kind of bits I like. Um, it, it's a bit hard to disconnect it from the, the Yellow Submarine segment as well. Maybe with that's Jeremy. What, yeah, maybe that's what I'm 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 thinking of. It is it uh, it it sounds to me different from what 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 surrounds it in in Rubber Soul, if that makes sense. But maybe yeah. it's just it is that vocal arrangement is is what is so distinctive. Yeah, it's 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 a song. Yeah, after they do that re-recording of Norwegian Wood, they start Nowhere Man, and actually the recording of Nowhere Man spans um, session six and seven on the twenty-first and twenty-second of October. So they they start with just the rhythm track, which they get a they get in take two, and you know the first version they they kind of start this. Uh, they kind of we're getting into this realm which we're seeing repeatedly throughout rubber soul where they're tinkering with things in the studio yeah. and then scrapping them they have this high three-part harmony and guitar figure and all the rest which apparently all gets scrapped from this first version i've never heard that i don't know if it's circulating um hmm. but i just know it from the description that mark lewison has in the sessions book which is sort of yeah talks about electric guitars and high harmonies and things so so, so the main focus for Nowhere Man is on the Friday where they kind of start again. And is this, is Nowhere Man like their first kind of non-love song or like it's, it, I guess maybe that's part of its oddness is that it doesn't really have a, uh, you know, a, a, the kind of the personal, yeah. you know, love song angle that other Beatles songs have had. I think, I think that's probably true. And this is sort of harks back to the thing that we quoted from Ringo at the very beginning, you know, that we, we, they sort of had done the love songs. They they'd got to the point of being unbelievably famous uh, off the back of those love songs, and now they're sort of branching out and they're moving into different areas. And you know, they're, Lennon is exploring 
sort of lyrics and uh, this seems to have been written sometime between September or early October 1965 and uh, in 1967 John said I was sitting trying to think and I thought of myself sitting there doing nothing going nowhere and once I thought of that it was easy it all came out I'd actually stopped trying to think of something nothing would come I was cheesed off went for a lie down having given up then I thought of myself as nowhere man sitting in this nowhere land and that in in that sense it, it sort of is the precursor to things like I'm only sleeping, I'm so tired, these sort of meditative, yeah. lazy songs um, uh, that, that, that John is, is writing. Um, he, he would say in 1980 that he spent five hours trying to come up with something, um, which I don't know if you can take that literally. Five hours sitting trying to do something is a pretty intense period but uh and then he said you know it's uh his great phrase was you put your finger on something and it slips away you know you turn the lights on and the cockroaches run away you can never grasp them so uh <laughs> that that songs are like cockroaches it is amazing that john and paul got stuff done because what we're seeing repeatedly here is that they have very different approaches where john is trying to you know, I guess in a wonder meditation kind of appeal to him, mm. John is trying to let things wash over him and tap into some kind of unconscious song, whereas Paul is rocking up saying, I know how to write a song. Uh, and that is, you know, what was great about the two of them together. So, yeah, he's, as you say, he spends five hours trying to write a song and then he just kind of slips to try and let it go. And it obviously works for him. But as you say, it does sort of lead into I'm only sleeping and I'm so tired where you're like, OK, I'm going to get into this sleepy trance like state. What type of song will I write? Oh, I'll write a song about being in a sleepy trance like state. There we go. Yeah. And uh, Paul, Paul is sort of quite clear that this was largely a John song, but he can tell us exactly what it's about. He says it turned out later that it was about me, Paul. He's a real nowhere man. I think, really? Mm, that, that doesn't tip know. at all. And then he said, uh, he, John, told me later, he didn't tell me then, he said he'd written it about himself, feeling like he wasn't going anywhere. I think actually it was about the state of his marriage. It was in a period where he was a bit dissatisfied with what was going on. However, it led to a very good song. Well, Lennon talks about a lot in 65, you know, Norwegian Wood and with the song Help as well, about writing these songs where he's trying to actually hide what he's saying mm. because either A, he doesn't want to reveal the truth to his wife or his fans or even to himself, or he's, you know, trying to, you know, he's a, he's, he's a guy who doesn't realise yet that, you know, maybe he needs a, a little bit of therapy of some type, you know. And, you know, I think the, the gift about Nowhere Man is that it's, it's, it's written in this kind of third person style. He's a real Nowhere Man. He's yeah. really singing, I'm a real Nowhere Man. I am stuck in a Nowhere Land. And, you know, the, 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 the clever bit that Paul points out is that line at the end, isn't he a bit like you and me? Me is the final word on the issue. Yeah. That's how it ends. And actually, that's what the song is about. It can seem a bit remote and distant. Oh, he's just writing about a nowhere man. But he's actually saying, I am that man. Actually, we're all that man. We, you know, what is the point of any of this? And once you kind of tap into the, you know, the existential bit of that, it's not really about Jeremy from Yellow Submarine. Then I think that is probably the, 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 the gift of the song, you know? And, and you have Dylan writing these songs where he's kind of, you know, you know, having to go with, you know, your Mr. Jones types, you know? Yes. And it's kind of interesting that Lennon is coming in saying, actually, I am one of those types, even though I'm a rock star, uh, I have uh, insight into what that means. I can I can understand the little people. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not I can understand the little people, but I, th I think what Lennon is saying is that actually... You know, you know, they had spoken 
before becoming famous and on the way up to being famous that actually, and a lot of people make this mistake, if I just get famous, that will solve all my problems, that will get me to where I am. But actually, you know, unless you're Paul McCartney, that's not actually true. And it certainly wasn't true for Lennon. And I think that's the, the wreckage that he's trying to, to pick through, you know. What, what, what are you saying? Everything in life fades away except fame and, and good looks. Those are the two constants. Yeah, I'm that basically your... saying that life is futile and, we, you know, we should all just um, give up. Anyway, uh, uh... Uh, they spend four and a half hours recording a packing session um, with John on acoustic guitar, Paul on bass, Ringo on drums and uh, George maybe uh, sitting out. But then uh, there's a John and George unison guitar solo done on uh, Fender Stratocasters. Mal I, is sent out to get strats. I do like the guitar solo. I do like the way it's done. Mm. Well, yes, supposedly, supposedly he was sent out. This is like, Mal, we need a hammer and an anvil. You know, it's that kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mal, we need some, <laughs> yep. some guitar. So, yeah, uh, George gave an interview uh, for a book called The Story of the Fender Stratocaster in 1995. And he said, I decided I'd get a strat. John decided he'd get one. We sent out our roadie, Mal Evans, said, go and get us two strats. And he came back with the two. Straight away, we used them on the album we were making at the time, which is Rubber Soul. I played a lot on that album, most noticeably the solo on Nowhere Man, which John and I played in unison. But this seems to, he seems to have forgotten that uh, he'd already used it on, he and John had already used Stratocasters on uh, Ticket to Ride from Help. So he's oh, yeah. c- confusing the two times. Certainly they had matching well, blue I, guitars, but... Uh, again, don't forget George... You know, in anthology, as you said earlier on, thinks rubber soul and revolver are kind of the same thing, and is not yeah. sure which order they come in, and that's fine. He was stuck in the middle of it. I, I, I think that's totally, totally reasonable. Um, you know, something we'll touch on later on is that the American uh, rubber soul is different to the UK rubber soul, and nowhere man is actually taken off, and it's a reasonably successful single in in the USA. Yes, with your favorite, what goes on as the B side. <laughs> hoping nobody would notice it probably i don't know well you think um, yeah, yeah yeah i mean it, it's february february 1966 it comes out so in 1966 the the single is nowhere man and what goes on and it kind of just highlights the different experience that you have from yeah. listening to the uk albums and and singles and so you sort of think well by 1966 they've moved on they're they're moving towards this kind of metallic uh paperback writer rain they're 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 proceeding in leaps and bounds but in america they've got nowhere man as uh as a single and uh that actually meant that the u.s version of rubber soul was the first u.s beatles album not to have a single uh on yes. it. and nowhere and that- man finally gets onto an album doesn't appear in the u.s until uh, june 66 on yesterday and today I think my favorite version, uh, my favorite album with Nowhere Man on it is Do It Now. Yes, that's a great album. <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> which is a 1970 Ronco compilation and has nothing to do with the Egypt Station song of the same title. Please tell me you don't have this. I'll be very annoyed if you have uh, a copy of this album. Uh, <laughs> Why would you not be joyful if I had a copy? I do not have a copy. When one of us shines, we both shine. I know that. When one of us has... A rising tide lifts all boats. Great. Yeah, Yeah. I want want to be the first boat up. Uh, Unless you're Spike Milligan, you don't get Beatles songs on compilation albums. But yeah, this is a kind of weird. 20 giant hits. Um, Very strange. It's a a Ronco compilation from 1917. It was 
released in conjunction with the Do It Now Foundation, which was a drug abuse fighting organization from California. And it's an odd kind of, it's got this odd kind of schoolhouse rock type cover. It's a very naff type thing. And it's got a very odd track listing. Yes, tell me, Jason, who is on this album? <laughs> is there anybody well, we know? Nowhere Man by the Beatles. Um, well, there is. There's, do you want me to mention Melanie or BJ Thomas or Jimi Hendrix? No. Or no. Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane? No. Do these, you mean these, the these are all who's... minor stars. Who else is they got anybody comparable to the Beatles on this album? So you don't mean the birds or the turtles? Do you mean ah. the person who's the ninth side on side, ninth track on side B? That's it. Um, let me just check my listings here. Donovan, hooray! Yay! You can take Donovan off your card <laughs> if you're playing at home. Um, so Donovan is on this Sunshine Superman. It's it's a strange, strange compilation, and yeah, it's rare to see the Beatles in that. You can pick it up on Discogs. It's quite uh, it's quite cheap, and there was like a spiel on the back of the the thing about, you know, this is for the Do It Now Foundation. Uh, uh, I have it here. This album is a celebration of life, a feeling of energy and love by the poets, artists and musicians who have joined together to speak for a purpose, to relay the message against drug abuse. So it's great that pothead Beatles and LSD birds are all over it. Yeah. Uh, the Do It Now Foundation uh, is helping to fight this problem. Never before in the history of the recording industry have so many artists of such stature donated their services for a collage album. Um, a product of Ronco Telly products. So yeah, a very strange thing. I'm not sure how much money that uh, that raised. I'm going to guess not much. Um, the, the 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 I guess that the key part about Nowhere Man is the extensive uh, vocal overdubs that they yeah. they did, where they put their harmonies throughout the song. And you know, uh, one of my favorite bits is Paul's really high harmony right at the end, which is a uh, just one of those moments that that uh, just elevates the whole thing. Um, there's a couple of different mixes of um, Nowhere Man doing the rounds, isn't that right? Yes, I mean you've got the the original '65. Uh... Uh, mixes across stereo and mono. Uh, you, you've got a new stereo mix for the Yellow Submarine song track album, uh, which is very good, mm-hmm. really pulls out the vocal. And uh, then there's the Love album features something, and it has Blue Jay Way and the harmonies from Nowhere Man in the background to that. And yep. uh, there's, there's, there's actually quite a few tracks from Rubber Soul uh, that pop up on that Love compilation. You know, they, 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 this is, yeah. this is, this is where I think the four track recording and the separating out the vocals and that, so it allowed them to go back and, and get those um, some, some of the most effective things on the love album, I think come from rubber. Soul. And I, I would say that the yellow submarine song track is definitely a, you know, it came out in 1999, all the tracks were stereo remixed at the time. They're unique stereo remixes for that yeah. record. And if there's anyone listening out there today, who's kind of bypassed it thinking, well, I have all the songs anyway, you don't. And I think it's a great sounding compilation and I would thoroughly, um, recommend it. Um, the thing about Nowhere Man, which I feel odd, out of all the songs on Rubber Soul that gets performed live, if I needed someone gets performed live, this is the only Lennon-McCartney Rubber Soul song that gets performed live. And it's still in the set list when they get to Japan the following year, trying to replicate those harmonies and distract the audience so they don't notice all the mistakes they're making. It's, it seems like an odd choice. It, it is. I mean, it, they really kind of set a high bar for themselves. You, you know, this is a very intricate mm. studio construction and then to try and do that live you know they could have done run for your life or drive my car or or day tripper the number or one day, day, day tripper but uh yeah it is it is it is odd uh, uh they don't do it very successfully i have to say on those japanese consoles no um so 
Now we move on to uh, the session number eight, which is Sunday, October the 24th. And once again, we are faced with this thing that they are doing where they are recording songs and scrapping them and doing different versions. And I think one of the more famous songs that gets done again and again and again is I'm Looking Through You. And they try three attempts to get I'm Looking Through You recorded um, uh, on this day, October the 24th. And they come back to it as we will do in November. And uh, but this is another one of these songs, along with We Can Work It Out, which is, you know, if I was Jane Asher, I'd be like, uh, is this about me? Uh, sounds like it's about me. You know, I wouldn't be too happy about this. You do wonder if you were Jane Asher and as each album and each single came out, you'd be thinking, sorry, what? What are you saying here? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but maybe maybe, maybe she didn't approach it in that way. Paul has said, you know, we quoted in the previous episode, he, he wasn't concerned. They had a completely open relationship. Completely open relationship, if you're Paul. Um, so the the version of um, I'm Looking Through You that gets recorded on Sunday, October the 24th, gets parked. Um, Monday the 25th and Tuesday the 26th are uh, mixing session days. And as is their want at this time, the Beatles are nowhere around for mixing sessions no. still. no. So decisions uh... are being made on their behalf by uh, George Martin et al., about what's uh, what this thing is going to sound like seems strange to us again in with 21st century eyes that they just leave it to them but i guess they would have seen it as not their job and kind of boring yes i mean i think it's probably the boredom factor um it, I, you know you contrast this when you get onto projects like the white album where you know they're each turning up for their own songs at the at the mixing stage and offering suggestions and overseeing effectively or at least inputting into the mix and um, i suppose at this stage they're just on sort of crossing over um, from from George Martin being the person that's absolutely guiding them in the studio uh, to what will yeah. the position they'll be in in a couple of years time where they're they're more in control of the, the overall sound. At this stage, you know, they clearly have still have complete confidence in him and perhaps it's yeah. a little bit lacking in confidence in themselves. So, yeah, Monday is mono mixing, drive my car in my life if I needed someone, day tripper, Norwegian wood, nowhere man. Tuesday, the 26th, is stereo mixing for drive my car, day tripper in my life if I needed someone, Norwegian wood, and nowhere man. And the Beatles were busy on Tuesday, the 26th, anyway, weren't they? They were having tea with the Queen. Well, maybe not tea. No, they were, well, they were, they were meeting the Queen, they were meeting Her Majesty. Um, that was MBE Day. MBE Day, yes. Uh, awarded by Harold, <laughs> Harold Wilson, uh, the Merseyside MP uh, and also Prime Minister at the time. Uh, completely yeah, you forget that Harold uh, yeah, Wilson that he was, was a, a local boy. A local boy, a local boy. So yeah, this is this is um, they're at at uh, they're smoking dope in the toilets at Buckingham Palace and uh, getting MBEs and giving press well, conferences. Are they? No, I mean it was the MBEs were announced uh, a little earlier in the year, and they're they're kind of forced to have this press conference about it. Yes. Um. Before uh, and and I I I it's I think it's hard for us to imagine nowadays when you know lots of kind of famous people get mbes that back in 1965 this was a bit of a cause celebre that uh you know this the, the mbes and and the the these sort of um trinkets that are given out by the british uh monarchy and government you know the knighthoods and the rest that uh you know they were generally with the reserve of 
uh, what would you say, um, war heroes or people who'd made a significant, you know, kind of personal contribution or, you know, also kind of associated with, uh, I guess, aristocracy and the well-to-do and, and the well-connected and all the rest. Whereas the Beatles getting it was kind of seen at the time as not the done thing by uh, a core of people. There, there's been, I mean, it's a silly thing to say, perhaps, but there's been a sort of democratization of those awards. You know, now, now there's always lollipop ladies and uh, uh, people mm. like that, postmen that deliver letters to houses 100 miles off the beaten track and things like that. But yeah, this, this, this caused quite the controversy. Um, people were handing back their the awards that they, they'd received uh, in, in protest. Uh, but I suppose, you know, it's like, George says an anthology, it was for selling all that corduroy and making England swing. <laughs> yes, you know, uh, at the press conference, you know, George has asked, you know, should Cliff Richard have got a medal too? Yes, a leather one with wooden strings. And, um, you know, do you think you deserve the awards, George? Again, it's not up to us to say that. The Queen must have thought so. Yes. I mean, that's a very goon thing. The wooden string is, I think, is a is a direct lift from a, from a goon show script. And, uh, but... Uh, you know, one of the reporters says, why have you been honored in this way? And Ringo says, look at all the dollars we pulled in from America. So, and Lennon is saying, we paid the government quite a bit in tax, don't you think? So, yeah. you know, there is a, there's an edge, there's a side. You imagine Brian Epstein standing off to one side, not happy with the answers, um, you know, and then they say, what will, what will you do with it? And George says, I'm going to hang it on the wall. Ringo says, I'm going to tuck it around my neck. Paul says, I'm going to keep it in a safe place. And uh, <laughs> Lennon says, I'll have mine made into a bell push so that people have to press it when they come to the house or else I'll take it to an antique dealer and find out what it is. You know, and you think this is, this is uh, not Brian's uh, ideal press conference, I imagine. Sometimes they are very clear about who they are, you yeah. know, and answers like that show that they're very clear about who they are. I mean, if you're... You know, part of this, you could argue, was a bit of a political game on the, the part of Harold Wilson, who did want to court mm. a young vote. Uh, if memory serves, I think the voting age was coming down at the time and uh, to 18 from 21. And so Harold Wilson, you know, was quite happy to sort of be the guy who gave the Beatles this kind of recognition. The reporters ask, what do you think of Mr. Wilson? George says, oh, we think of him what we always think of him. He's a he's a good lad. You know, he was a, you know, a Labour prime minister, as you say, at the time, and he was a local uh, member of Parliament for uh, Liverpool. So, but I think Harold Wilson is also playing a bit of a game by courting the Beatles. And, you know, in my lifetime, I certainly remember when Tony Blair was in number 10 and he's bringing in Oasis, yeah. you know, back in the you know, 97, 98. Um, you know, it's the exact same kind of game. Sir Noel Gallagher. It's only a matter of time. It's only know, a matter for of services, time. For services to recycling, you know. I would say that would be it. <laughs> um, so on October the 26th, the Beatles are at Buckingham Palace. They arrive in John's Rolls Royce. There's a crowd of 4,000 fans to see them being held back the police. Maybe the 4,000 people were there to see some other captain of industry who was being presented on that day. It's a bit of something to say it was just for them. Could be. And um, John says, you know, uh, in 1970, John says, you know, although we didn't believe in the royal family, you can't help but being impressed when you're in the palace and you're standing in front of the queen. It was like a dream. It was beautiful. People were playing music. I was looking at the ceiling. Not bad, the ceiling. It was historical, like being in a museum. I always have to take a step back when I read these stories and read these quotes and just remind myself that it's the same queen in 2021. Yes. 
who is presiding over all of this, that she was there. She's been on that throne now for it'll be 70 years next year. And it's the same Her Majesty that gets sung about in Abbey Road. It's the same woman. That's kind of wild. It is. I mean, it's it's it is a kind of constant, uh, uh, a constant presence. Um, You know, maybe she'd be there to give uh, Noel his knighthood when that comes around. But uh, maybe. But the thing is, you Um, you know, every every time every time the Queen's birthday comes around or the New Year's honours list, it is just a parade of pop stars. You know, Mick Jagger. I mean, Mick Jagger. When you think you Sir know, that, Mick Jagger, Sir Mick you. Jagger, that 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 you know, Sir Elton John, uh, it is that sort of journey from scruffy pop star to Knight of the Realm, and now no one bats an yeah. eyelid at that. You know, uh, for all Paul's marijuana busts, you know, for all Mick's uh, controversies, uh, his misogyny, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, these things are all forgotten, and uh, all, all culture is equal these days. I think. Well, let, let's not forget um, David Bowie, who turned down any attempt at people to give him any type of MBA, OB or knighthood uh, repeatedly. Is he, is he so, not um, uh, Dame, Dame David Bowie? <laughs> well, yes, maybe that's <laughs> he already had a Damehood, so he, he wasn't entitled to one. Um, the, look, you mentioned marijuana there. Did they or didn't they smoke marijuana in Buckingham Palace? John is very clear that they they do. In that, in, in that interview in 1970, which is in an anthology, he says, to start with, we wanted to laugh, but when it happens to you, you don't laugh anymore. We, however, were giggling like crazy because we just smoked a joint in the loose at Buckingham Palace. We were so nervous. We had nothing to say. She said, the Queen said something like, ooh, ah, blah, blah, and we didn't quite understand it. She's much nicer than she is in the photographs. And, and of course, it, it makes an appearance in the real love video. So the MBEs float by in the sky, oh, yeah. and then a rolled up joint floats by. But um, George, in an anthology, completely debunks this. And he said, we never smoked marijuana at the investiture. What happened was we were just waiting to go through. We were so nervous. We went to the toilet. We smoked a cigarette. We were all smokers. Years later, I'm sure John was thinking back and saying, oh, yeah, we, we smoked in the toilet and it turned into a reefer uh, because that what would be the worst thing you could do before you meet the Queen? Smoke a reefer. But we never did. Yeah, I, I love how an anthology, how he pronounces reefer. He, he, I, I don't think we can do it justice. It is such a, a kind of George word. It's one of those phrases like nervous system, you know, and reefer. He, he talks about reefer <laughs> yes. all the time, which is a kind of old jazz reference to, yeah. to, to, to marijuana. But uh, yeah, it's very funny. And, uh, you know, famously, uh, John returns his MBE in November 1969, even in the Gimme Some Truth compilation from a few months back it's celebrated the little telegram is reproduced yeah. inside where he famously says you know he's returning his mbe in protest against britain's involvement in the nigeria biafra thing against our support of america in vietnam and against cold turkey slipping down the charts and you know i guess he couldn't refuse a, a joke at that point um but uh so that's little over when you think about it. that's what just four years later it seems yeah. that it's in a ridiculously short period of time to get from november 65 to November 69 but uh, uh, some people were glad he returned his some MBA, people were they? some people were glad this is this is a great little story there was this is a um, a chap called uh, Cyril Hearn a police hero who sent his uh, British Empire medal medal back to the Queen in 1965 because the Beatles were given uh, the MB he wrote to the Queen saying could he have his medal back 
now that John <laughs> John had returned his award, uh, Mr. Hearn got his medal in 1944 for chasing an armed gang of bandits in Italy. Uh, he returned it because he thought the Queen had been ill-advised. It was the prostitution of the order, but but now could he have it back? But he did say, he did say, John has made his point. I think it's a very courageous thing to do and the balance is redressed. Uh, it's not clear whether he got his medal back. I'm suspecting, <laughs> I suspect not. Well, you know, uh, chasing down a, a bunch of bandits during during Second World War period Italy, that's what you should get a, a, a Queen's Medal for, not Selling you know, corduroy. releasing swinging corduroy records. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's NBA uh, Day is um, Tuesday, uh, October the 26th. And time invariably marches on. There's a bit of mixing done on uh, Thursday the uh, 28th. And on uh, Friday, October the 29th, they finish off We Can Work It Out and there's some mixing of the, the Day Tripper single. And But the Beatles are by no means on a break. They're actually about to record a TV special because what else would you be doing? But I'll tell you who is on a break. Us. And we'll see you after this one. You're good. End of part one. Intermission. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So we talked there about the Beatles were about to do a television special. And what was actually happening at the mix session on the 28th of October was they were mixing, uh, doing a unique mono mix of We Can Work It Out, which was going to be used for the Beatles to mime in a TV special that was recorded across the 1st and 2nd of November 1965, a TV special called The Music of Lennon and McCartney. And it's an, a curious thing, the music of Lennon and McCartney, because they're about to head off into this very um, astral plane of uh, spiritual significance, but there's something very light entertainment and old school about this TV special, the music of Lennon and McCartney. And it's kind of born of kind of, they're, they're, they're quite loyal, the Beatles, to, to, to people uh, and to, to institutions. And this, this kind of goes to a, a producer in Granada called Johnny Hamp, isn't that right? That's right. So he, he's a producer that had really championed the Beatles in the early days in 1962. Um, so before their national sort of rise, uh, he, he, Granada was sort of loomed large in their, their legend. So in, in 1965, he put forward this idea uh, of a tribute to the songwriting team. Uh, there were negotiations. The negotiations went on for two months uh, to get the Beatles um, involved and actually appearing and this is you know paul later said you know it wasn't really our thing and that they only agreed to participate because of loyalty to this uh to this uh 
producer. And remember at this point, they're turning down annual uh, requests to appear on the Royal Variety Show. So they're really not interested in this show busy side of things, despite turning up for yep. party parties at Lionel Bart's house. <laughs> Well, this feeds back into some of the stuff we mentioned in the Beatles in Ireland episode. So they turned down the 64 Royal Variety Show to play yeah. Belfast. And now they're being asked to do the 65 Royal Variety Show, um, which I'm just looking here had Tony Bennett, Max Bygraves, the Day Clark Five, Ken Dodd, good old Ken Dodd, Spike Milligan, Dudley Moore, Peter Sellers, um, you know, a decent, decent lineup. But again, you know, I think by not going back to the Royal Variety Show, it increases the impact of their 63 Royal Variety Show appearance. But they did have, as we again said in the Ireland episode, the the Beatles, uh, you know, the local ITV regional television station was Granada, um, Monday to Friday across the north at that point. And so they did feel beholden to Granada as a TV station, which you know, gave them exposure locally back when nobody wanted to give them any exposure. That was kind of part of what informed their loyalty to to sign up to to this project, you know. So, you know, they, they, they were very quick to forget the people who were rude to them, like Robert Stigwood, but yeah. they were also very quick to remember the people who were nice to them. And Johnny Hamp and Granada had helped them out before. So, yeah, they said, OK, let's uh, this, this is kind of the last appearance almost of that light entertainment TV Beatles in the UK. It really is. They've, they've turned their back on that. They're not doing the Christmas shows this year. Um, you know, so they've done the kind of pantomime uh, 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 Christmas shows in previous years. And um, this is, Paul, uh, or John said at this time, uh, you know, there's only 100 people in the world who really understand what our music is all about. Ringo, George, and a few others scattered around the globe. Um, People do our numbers, they add nothing to them at all. And there's a slight kind of echo of what George is saying there about uh, the Hollies. You know, it's, uh, yeah, they, and at this stage, people were doing cover versions. You know, there were already cover versions of Yesterday. Um, you know, Ella Fitzgerald is, is recording Can't Buy Me Love. So they're, they're, they're being sort of subsumed into that wider showbiz circuit. And there isn't, there isn't at this stage, I suppose, particularly in the UK, there isn't a separate rock audience. There isn't mm. a separate sort of, uh, you know, there's certainly no TV uh, shows for specifically for rock music. Um, pop music is just seen as a branch of uh, light entertainment. And, uh, you know, in America, you do the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, in the UK, you're playing theatres and things like that. So this is, again, it won't come for another couple of years, but there isn't a separate audience uh, uh, here. Well, you know, the, the Beatles are obviously, you know, extraordinarily famous by this point in time. Um, but it is curious how specific the title of this is, The Music of Lennon and McCartney, how it really separates, you know, John and Paul from the rest of the band, that it's about their songwriting. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, there's a quote here from Christopher Bray that says in 1965, the Beatles were everywhere. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, they were leaders of a new, new aristocracy and recipients of, of MBEs. And, you know, there, there, there's talk about how, you know, their, their songwriting partnership of John and Paul is, is kind of this very monumental thing that they have that is very different from other bands. And I've always been curious as somebody who, you know, only gets to look at the 60s retrospectively as to how John and Paul's songs, you know, infiltrated 
the national consciousness very, very quickly onto football terraces and, you know, whistling milkmen and all the rest. Even that little section in the James Paul McCartney special, which Paul loves so much, where he just has people on the street just singing songs. That that seems very important to them. And uh, it's really interesting how that you know, there are other bands who are writing their own material at this point. You know, they, they realize, you know, you've got Ray Davies coming out, you've got Pete Townsend starting to come out in 65. But Lennon and McCartney, very much in that way that they imagined themselves originally, are becoming songwriters of repute that will stand alone outside of the Beatles. They always took that side seriously, even in those early interviews. Oh, we, we, we see ourselves writing songs in 20 years time kind of thing. I, th- I think that is maybe one of the things that sort of sets them apart from their contemporaries at this stage is that they they placed a lot of emphasis on the songwriting you know john and paul and clearly george is then obviously mm. also saying yeah he felt the the need or the competition to to get into songwriting as well and um it's a combination i mean paul talks about that moment when they suddenly realized that songs had an existence and had a value mm-hmm. and Paul is is very aware of the financial side from an early stage in those interviews um you know when people like Dick James are suddenly saying to them yeah we can we can sell these songs we can get cover versions and Bob Spitz in 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 his um book uh really points to Robert Soul as being the point that elevated their songwriting and led to a bit of an upsurge in people recording songs. And he has a statistic from from six months later, and he says 88 Lennon and McCartney songs had been recorded in over 2,900 cover versions. Um, And that's in in virtually every style. So this is kind of harking harking back to, you know, people like Gershwin and and the kind of classic songs of musicals, you know. uh, which, which but is, it, you, it, it you, does set them up as a separate entity to the band. That's what I find really interesting, that Lennon and McCartney are one entity and the Beatles are another entity. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've said before, you know, Paul was always very keen. You know, you write a song, you, if you don't use it yourself, you can pass it on, somebody can do that. You can, there's money to be made. And, you know, he's still, you know, we, we know that he's invested in uh, uh, publishing of other artists as well. So the, the Beatles, you know, are trying to get this album over the line and they dedicate two days on the 1st and 2nd of November to being involved in this show. What exactly is their involvement? What do they have to do? Well, essentially, they're just they're miming. Uh, so they're miming to their own uh, uh, performances of Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. And then they do little filmed uh, inserts, you know, ladies and gentlemen, your hosts for this evening, the bony rolls. Yeah. You know, it is get back. This is all. This is all get back. <laughs> it is, yeah. And they film it in Libya. Is that right? No, they, they film no, no. Um, no. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, it's recorded over two days. And uh, sh- should we go through a running order of what's on the show? Yes, I have to say, I would not particularly have wanted to be live in the audience to see this. Really. Yeah, it's uh, it's so it's in three Not my parts, bag. Not and, my uh, bag. Not my bag. Yeah, it's a George Martin orchestra starts with a medley, including I Feel Fine. And then Lennon and McCartney appear, uh, you know, doing doing their linky bits. Peter and, Gor- Peter and Gordon's A World Let Love. Lulu, I saw him standing there. Alan Haven and Tony Crombie's A Hard Day's Night. Uh, Fritz Spiegel's Baroque and Roll Ensemble doing another medley. Um, and then the Beatles doing Day Tripper um, with a, a bunch of go-go dancers, which eventually appears on the, the OnePlus DVD set. I, I, I would like to know what happened to Fritz Spiegel's Baroque and Roll Ensemble. Oh, I've got all their 
album. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> um, the uh, then part two, Paul and Marianne Faithful doing a you know Paul starts miming to yesterday and then it abruptly cuts to Marianne Faithful miming her version, filmed from the shoulders up apparently. Yes. Why? Why? Why was that? Is that that for sort of modesty reasons? Was she wearing a low-cut uh, dress? Well, she was heavily pregnant, heavily pregnant. And you we, can't have, we can't have pregnant ladies on the television in 1965. You can't be giving people ideas, you know. Um, Antonio Vargas singing She Loves You. Uh, Dick Rivers, C'est mot qui ont oublié un jour, things we said today in French. That's when they talk about how their songs have travelled internationally. Billy J. Kramer's on the Dakota, still in employment, singing Bad to Me. Scylla Black singing It's For You. Uh, and then part three, back to the George Martin Orchestra doing Ringo's theme, This Boy, with go-go dancers, because uh, it's a party. Can we have, um, can we have Man- go-go dancers? Yeah. Can, we get, can we get go-go? I think if we do another live episode, we'll go-go, go-go dancers, dancers is the way to go. I'm writing that down. Um, go-go Henry dance. Mancini, If I Fell, Esther Phillips, And I Love Him, introduced by John. Peter Sellers doing A Hard Day's Night, and then the Beatles miming, We Can Work It Out. I think Peter Sellers' A Hard Day's Night is probably the most famous thing to come out of this TV special. Yes, this is in the style of Richard III. Yeah, right? so it's kind of, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's the joke. I'm trying Pre- to remember which actor he's, he's copying. Is well, it, he's, um, he's, it's, it's, he's just doing a kind of generic Shakespearean Laurence Olivier uh, Laurence Olivier, that's what I was thing. thinking of. Um, oh, you're, did you see Sir Anthony Cher passed away this weekend? I did see Sir Anthony Cher passed away. I have no idea who he is. So, um, <laughs> Philistine. Oh, um Yes, I'm terribly sorry. It's, it's, it's uh, you're more go-go dancers than Shakespeare. I know your type. <laughs> yes. Um, the show uh, is recorded over two days. And what's always amusing looking at this is just how tight the timeline is for everything, because uh, it gets announced in um, the Melody Maker in the episode or in the edition uh, marked the 4th of December. So I'm assuming that came out about a week earlier, say the last week in November. And, you know, it's, it's the last week in November and Melody Maker is announcing the TV special, the name of the single, the name of the album and the, 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 the track listing, but also the December tour, because tickets haven't gone on sale for the December tour by the last week in November. It's extraordinary how they, they managed to, to, to pull all of this off. But as you say, it's uh, 14 days to record an album, do a TV special and do a live yeah. s- back on the live uh, circuit. Yeah, easy. It all makes easy. Sense. You can see why Absolutely in 19, why in 1969 they thought, yeah, we've done this before. Um, the show got rebroadcast um, on BB on, on sorry on the Channel Four network in December 1985. Were um, you which, allowed to stay up late to see that? I, I'm trying to remember. I uh, as a kid in the 80s, Channel Four just seemed to be this miraculously exotic place to go for television. They, they'd reshow Ready Steady Goes and The yep. Prisoner and all sorts of kind of cool and groovy stuff. And you know, in uh, in the 80s, as a kid, that made the 60s seem utterly fantastic. It certainly explains a lot. I can't remember watching this specifically. It's possible. I I did watch it, and I I have to say, it was not cool and groovy. You know, it really oh, wasn't okay. cool and groovy. It was, you know, the Beatles were fine. Peter Sellers was funny. Marianne Faithful. She's, she's, you know, yeah. Marianne Faithful and Anne Margaret. Those are the obviously the two. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, it was. But it was a very kind of old fashioned variety show and very kind of stilted. Yeah. And it was definitely for the mums and dads. Uh, well, it's out there on YouTube if anyone wants to, yep. to to pull it up and have a look at it. But it is now uh, November the 3rd. It is exactly one month until 
hunters have to hold a copy of Rubber Soul in their hands. And most of the album still doesn't exist. <laughs> it still doesn't exist. This is madness. Um, so on November the 3rd, uh, it's session number 10. And they go in and they record Michelle. This is your favourite song. I hate Michelle. I know Can I? I think... I, 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 maybe this is why Rubber Soul doesn't land particularly well with me. I dislike Michelle and I dislike what goes on and I dislike Run for Your Life vaguely, although you're turning me around for it, uh, Run for Your Life. But Michelle, I always found, um, I don't know, I think songwriters have a balance really. And, you know, they're either writing something that's directly personal about their lives and you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Or if they're not writing something that's directly personal, you know, they're, they're trying to write something that's a, you know, um, you know, some kind of event or some kind of third person observed narrative, then you have to, you know, sometimes when it's good, it really connects. And sometimes you can kind of see the strings, I think. And I think yeah. something like Michelle, it just sort of seems contrived really that that's my problem with it and it's kind of cloying and i'm i there's there's a lot of sickly stuff that i do like but for some reason michelle just always kind of just seemed you know too much full of artifice in a way is that, that, yeah, is, that un, it, is that unfair no no no, no i think it's it, I, I i i think it's uh i think that is fair i think it is contrived um mm. and it's not a song that i ever liked but uh, yeah. it's a song that I've kind of come round to a little bit in, in recent times because I think Paul is very open about the contrivance that goes into it. You know, he, he, he's, he, yes. he, he says basically this is um, one of his very first songs. He talks about this being written on his Zenith uh, guitar, which was the, you know, the very first guitar that he owned. And uh, he, he says uh, there used to be a guy called Austin Mitchell who was one of John's tutors at school and he used to throw some good all-night parties. You could maybe pull girls there, which is the main aim of every second. You could get drinks, which is another aim, and you could generally put yourself about a bit. So I remember sitting there, and my recollection is of a black turtleneck sweater and sitting enigmatically in the corner playing this rather French tune. I used to pretend I could speak French. I mean, you think, would that possibly work? Even in, even in that era, would that possibly have worked? He's well, we this is another thing we've touched on before. Paul is the imagined self, and teenage yeah. Paul he recounts these stories of he goes on a bus and he imagines he's a writer and he goes to a party and he imagines he's a French existentialist. And I believe he's now in his 80th year and he's imagining he's a global colossus rock star because he is, but yeah. it's purely he's been able to, um, you know, put himself into those positions where he, um, you know, says, well, if I imagine this thing, then this is what this thing is. So mm. I, I, I do believe that story that he would go to parties and he would pull out his guitar and he would, you know, um, try on a version of himself to see to see would it work, you know. And so I, I, I do I do get that, you know, he's he's got this Frenchy kind of style of thing. And I guess, you know, the phrase of these Rubber Soul podcasts is I'm a guy who knows how to write a song. So he says, well, if this is my Frenchy song, let's. Let's go for see it. what threads. Let, let's do a bit of research. Let's do some legwork. I'm not going to lie back on my bed and imagine a French song. I'm going to talk to people who speak French. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so th th this is, you know, the various things where he sort of says, John says to him, do you remember that French song you used to you used to do? 
Um, but there, there is a, another one of these demo tapes that I found a reference to, which is a reel-to-reel that Paul gave John, which includes a little demo, an instrumental demo mm-hmm. of the song on electric guitar, and also we can work it out on acoustic. But John has recorded over it. So there's only maybe 40 or 50 seconds of each song. And what did he record over it? He recorded himself with lots of echo, reciting a comic version of a Beatrix Potter story. So he records over Paul's demos of those songs. And you think, ah, oh, this is Lord. not good. This is not good. But um, <laughs> Paul talks about, you know, the, if you like the, the, the sort of the sophistication of the song. And he talked about this in the 321 uh, documentary with Rick Rubin. Yes. Um, but he talked about this jazzy chord in the middle of it. Um, and he said, uh, it's a jazzy chord, Michel Mabel, that second chord, that was a chord we used twice in the Beatles, once to end George's solo until there was you. And again, when I used it in this, it was a chord shown to us by a jazz guitarist called Jim Gretty, who worked behind the counter at Frank Hesse's where we used to buy our instruments. Jim Gretty showed us this one great ham-fisted jazz chord. Bloody hell, George and I learned it off him. <laughs> and he tells Rick Rubin, we refer to that as F-demented. <laughs> Well, it, 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 if we're trying to pull the timeline of the song, um, Paul is on holidays in Portugal in September uh, 1965. He's in this holiday home of um, a Radio Luxembourg presenter, Muriel Young with Jane Asher. And he's just playing the riff over and over again. And he's not singing Michelle Mabel. He's singing, you know, good night, sweetheart. And then hello, my dear. As she says, he was looking for something that would fit the rhythm. So you can kind of see that, you know, hello, yeah. my dear. You know, he's mm-hmm. just so... He, he, you know, Paul is great at trying to, you know, dig and try and find the root. So realizing that as French, uh, Ivan Vaughan steps into the picture, sort of. Yes, his his wife, Jan, is a French teacher. And yeah. from what she says, I think, you know, I think this is a, a Lennon McCartney Vaughan song because he, it, he, he it plays. It seems true, yeah. Yeah, he plays the rhythm and says, you know, what what do you think? Uh, I need a French girl's name. I said she came up with the phrase Michelle Mabel. And she said it wasn't that mm. hard to think of it. You know, some days later he phoned me up and asked if I could translate the phrase. These are words that go together well. And I told him it would be sans les mots qui vont très bien ensemble. And you think that's got to be worth a credit. You know, we'll see. Well, Ringo, it's Ringo, worth, you know, Ring, uh... Ringo gets a credit on a song later <laughs> in the album uh, for less. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, yeah, give me a French name, two syllables, and make it rhyme with something. Yeah. And Michelle Mabel, it's quite, it's, it's, it, it is kind of perfect, I have to admit, you know. So, you know, looking at the timeline, if he doesn't have that in September 65, that must be a conversation that happens late September into October 65. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's playing it for um, John. And again, it's another one of these collaborations, because this time John is responsible for the, the middle section, because Paul originally has no middle. No, there is no middle section. And I mean, Paul has already said previously, you know, he he writes the middle eights for John. John doesn't do middle eights. But here it's John uh, based on Nina Simone's song, I Put a Spell on You. Um, he comes up with the I love you, I love you, I love you section. Uh, and he said, uh, my contributions to Paul's songs were always to add a little bluesy edge to them. Otherwise, Michelle is a straight ballad, right? He provides a lightness and optimism while I always go for the sadness, the discords, the bluesy note. And um, Paul says, yeah, I, I'll give John 10 points for that. <laughs> yeah, he says, yeah, I love you. I love you. I love you. Wasn't in the original that John put that there. And Michelle is recorded. Yeah. Across two sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But I was going to say that's another joke in the song. 
I love you, I love you, I love yeah, you. Yeah. I, I guess you know by now, because that's, a, you know, I'm, I'm just repeating this and repeating this. I guess you know that because I'm just saying, no, you don't get the comic oh. aspect of this album at all. Rubber Soul. It, uh, my sides are just aching from listening to it. Um, oh. Michelle is recorded across the whole day. There's two sessions. So the 2.30 to 7 p.m. session is uh, filling up the four tracks with a rhythm track of drum and acoustic guitars. Uh, and then uh, overdubs on the, the three tracks remaining of Paul's vocal, uh, three-part harmonies from John, Paul and George. And then the same harmonies, double tracks. So technically you've got seven voices harmonized. Um, and then there's a second session from 7 to 11.30. And this is the, the one song on Rubber Soul where four tracks aren't enough. So they bounce down the tracks to leave, uh, uh, you know, another track open um, for overdubs. And so Paul then does something that becomes very commonplace in later Beatles records, which is add the bass on last. Yes, yes. And again, he talks about this on on with, with Rick Rubin, where he's, uh, he says, I just thought this up on the spot. Uh, I would never have played Michelle on bass until I had to record the bass line. Bass wasn't an instrument you sat around and sang to. And then he said, uh, it was good when I found that. Looking back, I astound myself. <laughs> but well, you, 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 you described... Is he, is he now moving on from being a fan of the Beatles to being a fan of Paul McCartney? He's certainly a fan of Paul McCartney's bass playing, but we all are a fan <laughs> of Paul McCartney's bass playing. But he says, you, you've described the, the sessions coming across. The other thing he says in three... Uh, McCartney 3G1 is we had one and a half hours to make that track, which is pretty economical, but they didn't. Not true. No, no, they spent a whole day doing us. Now, it's still impressive that they did it in a whole day across about eight hours. So it's still nothing to be uh, sneered at. And but the, um, it's. Uh, yeah. And the other person who needs to get a writing credit on this uh, song is George Martin. It's a Lennon McCartney Vaughan Martin because George Martin wrote the guitar solo. And uh, he, yes. he he plays it on piano and George Harrison uh, just plays it along with him. But this time, George Martin's piano is off to one side, not not on the tape, you know, so uh, it's not really picked up. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not a Lennon McCartney song at all. It's it's Lennon McCartney, Vaughan Martin. Uh, yeah. Everybody. And pretty, pretty wild. Any, anyone else? Billy Preston? Anyone? Billy Preston? No, 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 nobody yet. But it was, uh, it, it wins a Grammy Award for Song of the Year in 1966. And it is the 42nd most performed song of the 20th century, not of the Beatles. It is extraordinarily the... successful, this song. And it is, it is it's one of these ones, the BMI, the, the publishing people, it gets these huge airplay awards. I can't remember ever hearing Michelle no. on the radio. No. Uh, and so I don't know where this, this, this might be across the, the US, but the song is hugely successful, hugely famous, hugely well known. Um, but I still don't like it. So, uh, but maybe I like it more having discussed it. Fun facts. He sang it for Michelle Obama in 2010 yeah. uh, at the White House. And the other fun fact is there are four different versions of this. So you've got a UK mono version, which is the shortest, the 1987 CD mix, which is five seconds longer. You've got the UK stereo mix from 1965, which is four seconds longer again. And then you have the US mono mix from 1965, which has an extra five notes on the fade out. I'll take the shortest version. That'll be my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I, I'm i sure this is going to provoke some controversy. It will. In the, You're not the one that will have universe. to put up with the comments on Facebook about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Facebook, what's that? Anyway, um, 
But that's all done in a day. We move on to the next day, the following day, Thursday, November the 4th, session number 11. And if ever there was an indication that perhaps the tank is a little bit empty, uh, there are two songs that get put down on this day. What Goes On and 12 Bar Original. Classics. Um, what Goes On is the sole Lennon-McCartney Starkey uh, writing credit. As you say, it does appear on the B-side of Nowhere Man in the uh, US. It doesn't make it onto the US album. Um, what Goes On just, it's, 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 um, you don't it's like poor. this at all. You don't like this at all. Well, it often does. You know, when people get onto that hoary old topic of what's the worst Beatles song or what's your least favorite Beatles song, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, a lot of people go, oh, Revolution 9, but that's the wrong answer because Revolution 9 answer. is great. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they, they go on to Mr. Moonlight, but I think, you know, Mr. Moonlight kind of is what it is. But what goes on, which is a side opener on what's supposed to be one of their best albums is not good enough. And so because of where it exists in their universe, that gets it demoted as far as I'm concerned. Fair enough. Let's move on. <laughs> no, this well, is, a, I, it, I, I mean, it's, I certainly would not say it was my favorite Beatles song or maybe even the top okay. half of my favorite song, but it's not, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I really don't understand. It, it echoes almost exactly um, Act Naturally. It's a kind of country-style yeah. song, and it opens side two, and it's a vocal for Ringo. And, um, you know, would, have I explained my theory uh, that Ringo invented Americana in, in, um, in the UK? You know, he, he, he's, he's a country and Western artist, even when he's in the Beatles. Um, but it's a very early song. Uh, it dates from 1963, uh, and it was premiered to George Martin on the 5th of March, 1963, for consideration as their next single. This could have been their third <laughs> single. And we'd never yes, heard from the Beatles again. Is that, is, that your, is that your theory that if this had been... If, that is my general thought, yes. So they had uh, From Me To You, Thank You Girl, One After 909, and uh, What Goes On. And George Martin says, ah, I like what that guy Jason Cardi <laughs> is saying. I, I, me and Jason are, you know, simpatico. Yeah. Um, it, but, but yeah, it's it, it is hanging around early now. The version that's premiered in March '63 is different because Ringo has to add his own um, magic to it, his own lyrical flourishes. What does he add? He adds the phrase uh, "waiting for the tides of time," hmm. which you think. You know, Jan Vaughan did more for Michelle than uh, Ringo did for What Goes On. Well, yeah, there's certainly instances and there's certainly instances where George has contributed a line or two or even doesn't Donovan say he contributed Sky, Sky of Blue, Sea of Green yeah. or one of those lines yeah, from Yellow yeah, Submarine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there have been other contributions. It is odd that he was given, a, unless they just wanted to, unless they felt a bit guilty that George was making a bit of publishing money and Ringo wasn't, that they wanted Maybe. to throw him a throw him a, a little a little bone there you know it's a good um, line it's a good line waiting waiting for the tides of time it's no waiting for a blast from your past but uh it's uh... waiting for a blast from the past <laughs> yes <laughs> um it, it is curious that they pull this out that uh you know they didn't pull out the one after 909 yeah. um and they still haven't uh you know they still haven't gone back to uh wait yet um but you know, if you listen to what goes on, it, it does sound like a fast recording. There's lots of little kind of quirks and 
you know, uh, cues on it. That's a, a little bit strange. You know, it is recorded very, very quickly. Um, you know, it's uh, John's on electric rhythm guitar, George's on lead guitar, Paul on bass, Ringo on drums, and there's an off microphone uh, guide vocal uh, before the main vocals go on. So it's it's quite rough and ready. It's a Ringo track. Again, is this, yeah. you know, well, we have the Sonic of Ringo. Uh, what have we got? This'll do. And it, there is there is a this this there is a this'll do quality about it, and you can't really imagine this song being sung, sung by anybody else. Yeah, and and only the, the 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 lead guitar at the end is the only instrumental overdub. So then they're done, and um, you know there's there's lots of kind of odd uh, mixing uh, oddities based into it. So um, you know the mono mix doesn't have that guitar flourish at the end on it at all. Uh, no, but you're saying, uh, you know, it was the B-side of Nowhere Man in the US, but because of the kind of odd approach in America to singles, what goes on gets the number 81 in the charts in its own right. So it's a hit of sorts. It's a hit. Well, it just, it just goes to show what number in the charts would a bad Beatles song get to? And the answer is 81 in 1966. There is, there is a There is a... Uh, treasure hunt for everyone uh the initial songwriting oh, credit on the single is uh john and paul so it's uh, uh capital so used to just um you know lennon mccartney yep. and it's only the later pressings of the single that show lennon mccartney starkey so uh, uh it's the starkey copies are the collectible version because by that stage the single was sort of on the way down from 81 and, you know, Ringo does pull it out of the hat live. He's played with his uh, all-star band. It's on a, a live album from uh, 2006 and a live recording from 2008 as well. So, you know. So many live Ringo albums in the 21st century. <laughs> yes, if it, if it was done by country artists, it'd be Slim Pickens. Hey, see what <laughs> did there. Um, thank you. Uh, but if you do love the sound of a barrel being scraped, the other song recorded that day is 12 Bar Original. Um, which they start at about two in the morning, realizing that the album is pending. And uh, they spend about 90 minutes recording 12 bar original. And if anything was a precursor to um, uh, the, 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 the noodlings of January 1969, yeah. it's 12 bar original. What were they thinking? I mean, this, this, this makes the only thing, the only thing that's in my head is were they possibly thinking this is a B side? you know, that we might have to pull Day Tripper or we can work it out onto the album and we just have some throwaway thing on on the B-side. I mean, it, it can't possibly have been intended uh, to be on the album. Where would it fit? And it's it's over six, uh, six and a half minutes long with, with some funk, funky harmonium from uh, George Martin. Uh, it's well, very yeah. strange. <laughs> uh, normal speed harmonium. But what well, I, I think what they were thinking was it's two in the morning. We've an album to finish. There's a bit of a, a British blues boom going on. Let's try and do. We're the Beatles, the best band in the world. Surely we can do a 12 bar bluesy number. And they found it pretty quickly that the answer is yeah. no, that, yeah. you know, what we've kind of learned with the benefit of hindsight is, you know, they were extraordinarily adept at uh, you know, they weren't just a great little band, but they were adept at writing, writing songs, actually writing songs and actually creating records. And 12 Bar Original is neither of those things. It's not a song and it's no. not a record. So it's not playing to any of their strengths at all. But they gave it a go, in fairness to them. The, they did. And I mean, it turns up there's an edit, uh, just shy of three minutes, uh, which is from four different bits. It's a kind of composite of the final take. Yeah. Uh, squeezed together, it turns up on Anthology 2. It's not a track I ever 
listen to? Yeah, it's the the whole thing is six minutes and 42 seconds, and they they do like a very judicious edit to get it to two minutes and 55 in Anthology 2. It is what it is. It belongs in Anthology. It's a curio, but it's not very good. And it's interesting to listen to it in the context of how great they were at everything else and how mm. not very great they were at doing 12-bar blues. Um, that is uh, Thursday the 4th, and they are sessioning until way past midnight till about four in the morning. They are back in the studio on Saturday, November the 6th. And instead of doing a new song, they decide to do a second version or a first remake of I'm Looking Through You. And what's worth uh, saying about this is this is still not the version that comes out on Rubber Soul. They spend six hours doing this from time is of the essence. Um, they do two takes with a number of overdubs. And although it's closer to where they're going, uh, it's it gets shelved again. And they, uh, I'm Looking Through You gets to live another day. You think, Paul, just, just, just let it go, Paul. Just let it go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it would have it would have done. I mean, I think the right version ended up on Rubber Soul eventually, and we'll we'll come to that uh, in a bit. But uh, you know, it was good enough. It was certainly better than some other bits and pieces that were lying around. Can I say I do prefer the anthology version? Um, it's just kind of got a. I think they're both great. Yeah, they're good, both good, but I prefer the anthology version. I think they should have stuck with, you know. Well, I I think in the style of the Sgt. Pepper title track or Junk, they should have put two versions on the album. Isn't it a pity? You know, they could have just, they could have just decided there's, there's version one and version two. They, they didn't yeah. uh, figure that one out yet. You know, there could have been a reprise or something like that. Uh, if only they'd known. If only we'd been there to advise them. Um, so that brings us up to Saturday, uh, November the 6th, and then they take Sunday, November the 7th off. And that is where we're going to press pause on part two of our three parts on Rubber Soul. Are they going to get the album finished? Are they going to get it over the line? Yeah, they are, because we all know and listen to, to Rubber Soul. But there's still a story to be told because it's quite tight. Um, and, you know, even now we've got less than a month to go. They literally have 10 days to get it to the pressing plant. And there is still a chunk of Rubber Soul that still isn't recorded. It's really strange, isn't it, Stephen? It's no it's, way to do business. It is no way to do business. It is absolutely no way to business. Whereas, you know, we 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 have recorded this podcast three years ago, uh, and yeah, right, right now it's, yeah, it's great. It's um, loads of time. Um, so uh, so yeah, so that's where we're going to press pause, and we will take it up in mid November in part three, the third and final part of our look at Rubber Soul. Uh, we remain available in all the usual places. The website is the main portal, www.nothingisrealpod.com. Go to ACAST Plus. It's all too much for loads of bonus episodes. We've done loads of episodes this year about great things. Um, you know, the, the alternate American Beatles, Paul McCartney's Birds. Uh, there's loads of interesting things that we've talked about over there. And there's more coming down the pipe on there. Uh, Twitter at BeatlesPod, uh, which is usually me. Facebook, uh, the Nothing's Real Private Facebook group, which is where Stephen likes to spend all of his time. Uh, there's Instagram, TikTok occasionally. <laughs> lots of other stuff as well but nothing is real pod.com that's the website that you need to to go to but for now until the next time i'm jason carty i'm stephen cockcroft and this has been nothing is real thank you for listening Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.